I just want to uh, underscore uh, something that Andy said there. Um, uh, it was really, he, he, uh, the, the um, community organizer in chief currently living at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue actually did say a few days before the election that to a, a throng of admirers that they were only a few days away from fundamentally transforming the United States of America. That is an extraordinary statement. I mean, here you had the richest, uh, the freest, and the mightiest country in the history of the world. If you were going to fundamentally transform it, which of those things would you start with? <laughs> I mean, it's really a, a remarkable, remarkable statement. Any, anyway, uh, Andy, thank you. Um, questions, comments from the panel first? Speechless. Pretty sorry excuse for optimism. That's all I can say. <laughs> Peter? Uh, uh, wait, wait for the uh, mic, too, please. I just had one thought that uh, uh, I wonder if you have considered, and that is that the particular mix that created the America that we described and historically <coughs> might be unique, might be peculiar to a group of people who were also unique and peculiar, namely the, the English. Uh, could the universality of many of these principles be superficial? That is it possible that the exportability and the, the uh, fundamental truth of the system of government be rather more special um, to the societies that are trying to preserve it than, uh, than we sometimes recognize. I think the this political experience is like the blink of an eye in history. I mean, to, to, uh, to suggest that there's anything normal about it over the, over the broad stretch of history, I think, is, is just wrong. It's, uh, uh, it, it's, it's very late in developing, and whether it can endure at this point, given these straits, to me is uh, is uncertain. And I don't, I, I'm not sure I accept the premise that it's necessarily uh, been transferred from one side of the Atlantic to, to the other. I think that the fundamentals of it have, but but we have, uh, as has been said earlier, um, I think it's a unique uh, blend here of. British fundamentals and a, and a distinct American uh, gloss on them. But it's only, it's less than uh, a quarter of a millennium, and, and who knows whether it can last. It's fundamentally different now than it was, say, in 1920. Um, so I don't know. Yes, sir. Can I just ask, I mean, just a, a, a comment and a question, I suppose. The, the comment is, of course, in Britain, some of the first people to capture the scale of the pensions crisis were in the private sector and not in government. Uh, most famously, a chap called John Ralph, who was finance director of a company called Boots, in which he decided in the late 1990s to transfer the entire pension fund of Boots into bonds, not equities, uh, because of the scale of the, the pensions crisis that Boots itself faced. He, he was considered eccentric at the time and now is viewed as somewhat visionary. Um, but my question is this. I mean, to what extent might a, a delayed retirement age 
uh, help ease some of the challenges that you're talking about? Um, you know, with, with regard to Medicare as well as as well as uh, you know entitlement spending writ large. Yeah, I, I think that's a that's really a, a a timely question because one of the one of the gripes I have about the way that our debate is unfolding is, and part of the reason I wanted to accumulate these numbers rather than uh, than stick with just Medicare or just Social Security uh, and so on, is that as they arise in the political debate. You would get – it's almost as if they arise in the vacuum so that, uh, you know, Social Security in the last week or two has been topical. So we now talk about, uh, A, whether it's a Ponzi scheme. That's the, uh, that's the big debate of the moment. Uh, and, B, whether you can, whether you can uh, fix it and preserve it by tweaking the retirement age and means testing and, uh, you know, adjusting the uh, – uh, but, but adjusting the withholding and, and so on. Um, and then next week, we'll be on to, to Medicare as if there is no Social Security, and that will be spoken about in a vacuum and, you know, what tweaks can be done to, to fix that as well. And then we'll be on to the next topic and, and so on. And I, I think what it really is imperative that we do is look at this thing as a whole, as the, as the entitlement state. After all, that, that is really the way... Roosevelt envisioned it, and the, the Social Security, just the peculiar fact that uh, it was supposed to kick in at 62 when life expectancy was 60, uh, the idea wasn't to make payments to, to uh, retirees in the here and now at the time it was passed. It was to get a foot in the door on which the greater edifice could be built. And I don't think, it's, I don't think it makes sense to take these issues one at a time. I think they have to be looked at the way that uh, they were intended, which is what tweaks are required, if any, that could, could make the entitlement state as a whole um, viable. Uh, and that's why I think it's worth looking at the accumulated debt, which is, uh, which is simply impossible. Um, on the left, I've noticed that the talking point du jour, uh, and we probably all noticed this, uh, is fair share. You know, we need the rich to pay their fair share. And I thought it was interesting during the week, I saw uh, one of the cable TV hosts, Stuart Varney, who is very good, um, have, uh, you know, these days I say you can't swing a, a dead cat without hitting a political strategist, right? If you, with cable television, time needed <coughs> to be filled up. These people have sprouted uh, faster than, than weeds. And he had a series of them on. Uh, and tried to press them for an answer of, well, what is fair share? What does that mean? Is it a quarter, a third, a half? Um, and they won't answer the question. And of course, you know, if you if you answer the question, um, it, it, be, it becomes uh, too crystal clear that the that the whole thing is uh, unsustainable. But on our side, I think that we are almost equally weaselly on what is meant by preserving these programs as opposed to, I got in an argument with somebody about, uh, uh, she ended up saying, you want to dismantle this and what we need to do is reform it. Now, what the difference is between dismantle and reform in reality is, is something that I think is pretty interesting. But I think we, they need to, to be pressed on what they mean by fair share. Um, but we need to be clear about what we mean by restructuring, modifying, reforming. I, I think ultimately 
the whole thing needs to be scrapped, it doesn't mean that you scrap the concept that there ought to be some social safety net for the truly needy, um, and that enables you to, to make that uh, broader or narrower depending on what your straights are in the moment. Um, but, but I don't see what the problem is in being forthright about that. But on our side, we seem to be uh, on the part of the side of the debate that I find myself on most of the time. Um, there's a real fear about saying, um, you know, Social Security is unsustainable, Medicare is unsustainable. And I, I really think we need to, to rethink the whole thing. And the best way to do that is to try to, to show what the numbers are and that they simply can't be continued. Andy, to what extent do you think that your conservative interlocutors are uh, not making an intellectual point, uh, but rather are avoiding the intellectual point in order to counsel what they conceive to be a politically successful strategy? In other words, I, I, when, when, uh, when Governor Perry referred to uh, Social Security the other day as a Ponzi scheme, uh, uh, people left all over that, conservatives as well as uh, um, um, left-wingers. Uh, now, whether it's a Ponzi scheme or not, leave, leave that to one side. But I wonder whether the conservative side of the fence was, was even if they, whatever they thought about Social Security and its viability, saying, well, um, that was politically inexpedient of him to say that, <clears throat> even if it is true. Right. I, I think... You've hit it on the head. It's a on the in the Republican establishment, and even on I think most of the right, it's a focus group-driven campaign rather than an ideological campaign. I think they have made the calculation. They're looking at the numbers now, and even now, a year out, Romney already beats Obama, and Perry, at least until last night's uh, performance, was not far behind. Uh, even Palin is, you know, within shouting distance and probably almost whispering distance at, the, at this point. So they're looking at the numbers, uh, and they're, they're, they basically want to go into uh, what the basketball fans used to call the, uh, the four corners uh, approach before the shot clock, right? They, they, their idea is don't make any mistakes. Um, the election is going to be about Obama, not about us. So let's not talk about Social Security, which gets people nervous. Let's not talk about Medicare, that gets people nervous. Um, and let's continue to try to make the, uh, the, the election about him, and then we'll win. And at this point, it's much more important to get Obama out than w anything that we may do once we get in. Here, I think, is, is the problem with that. Uh, number one, it is very important, given the dire straits we're in, what the next president does about them. Uh, and secondly, I think it's craven to suggest that you can't win with the truth. And when you have a campaign that's, that's driven by these political strategists, um, what they are basically saying is that the, the truth doesn't necessarily set us free because we're so incompetent at explaining it uh, that it will be the ruin of us. And I, I just, um, you know, this may be a function of having grown up as a trial lawyer rather than a journalist or, a, or a, a political strategist. But, you know, when you start a trial that you know is going to be difficult, 
Uh, and when you decide strategically what are we going to charge and what are we going to try to prove, the first rule of the road is to say what is reality, what really happened, and try not to structure what you have to prove against reality because that's, that's the way people get into trouble. And this may be, uh, you know, maybe it's New York moxie, maybe it's trial lawyer arrogance or whatever it is, but having tried a lot of cases in front of common sense people uh, and managed to carry it off okay, I really became of the strong view that if you can articulate, if you can identify what the truth is, you can figure out a compelling way to explain it, and you can convince people of it. And you shouldn't be paralyzed by words like, uh, you know, social security and Medicare and all, and all these uh, buzzwords that, for the political strategists, become uh, excuses for not thinking. I, I just think it's craven to think that we can't pierce that. Any chance you would be uh, running for office soon? <laughs> Um, with, with Mr. Holder in charge, I'm trying to stay a step ahead of indictment for, yeah, yeah. for James now. and then the judge. <laughs> okay. Uh, looking at the numbers as you've laid them out, and I have to say I believe your numbers are entirely accurate. Um, if this were a private enterprise with a balance sheet like that, the directors would be having discussions with bankruptcy lawyers in order to, uh, you know, get themselves out of any personal liability at this point. <laughs> uh, and as you know, if you see a, a private enterprise on the verge of bankruptcy where the, bank, where the directors are not willing to take that step, what happens is that the most aggressive creditors put the most pressure on and they get preferential payments. And one of the main points of bankruptcy law and the whole idea of bankruptcy is not just to give re uh, relief to the a debtor, but to ensure that the creditors are paid off equally and fairly as much as best as possible. The other thing that happens in whether it's trying to avoid bankruptcy or when you go into a debtor in possession type bankruptcy, that you look at all the resources and you take the things that have been sacred cows that the directors have previously said, well, we can't touch this and we can't touch that, and you say it's all on the table. Uh, it strikes me and I'm supposed to be the optimistic person here, too, uh, that we are coming to an inflection point in national history uh, of the sort that we've only had several times in the past, that we have to look at this as a bankruptcy-type situation and say, what are the sacred cows we have not been barbecuing up until now? I really do not like the idea, Aaron, I believe I'm agreeing with you here, we take Social Security, we take Medicare, say those are the bad boys, and people are going to have to make a lot of sacrifices, but do not go after the other interests that could be put on the table, and I think must be put on the table. Uh, one of the largest and the most consequential ones is regulatory reform, because this is the biggest waste of all, yes. is a $2 trillion a year by CEI's estimate tax on productivity in this country. And it's not even benefiting anybody. It's benefiting uh, some regulators, and it's benefiting some large corporations who are protected from competition by that. But we would unleash a huge amount of resources by taking serious regulatory reform, like reexamining the Environmental Policy Act, um, things like Sarbox and, uh, you know, the late Dodd-Frank, the latest things uh, have been huge breaks on the economy that people really don't realize. 
go after things like Davis Bacon, which is a huge boondoggle, which is, I don't know, it's what, wasted at least half of the, the stimulus uh, to the extent that stimulus was going to do any good whatsoever, would have been at least twice as effective if Davis Bacon had been suspended merely for that. Uh, what I, the book that Encounter Books is about to put out next year, I'm uh, talking about something called the big haircut. And this is basically a bankruptcy equivalence process for the United States. I think that the right would be foolish just to go in and say, right, old people and uh, poor people are going to have to tighten their belts because Medicare and Social Security are unsustainable. Yes, they are. But I think that uh, it would be an electoral catastrophe to go in there and only present entitlement reform as our way out of the economic uh, we have got to present uh, an agenda that says we're going to barbecue some of these other sacred cows, we're going to alleviate some of the pain that is going to have to happen with entitlement reform, but if we can restore a halfway decent uh, growth rate, I think Larry Kudlow has been the best uh, public advocate at that point, uh, it's going to be easier to tackle the entitlement type issues. So I agree that it's got to be a, a broad view. We have to really look at everything, and I, I think we have to take the broadest possible look at what everything involves. And it may also even, uh, be a case where we have to at least examine some kind of uh, rescheduling of the uh, Treasury obligations internationally, because I think that uh, the international market would probably prefer a process where we say, we're going to undertake these structural reforms so we will be healthy going forward, um, it's going to involve some rescheduling debt, but this is truly a one-time process. I think they would prefer that to uh, watching a uh, rapid uh, uh, default by inflation, for instance, which is probably the other major option. So it's not really a question except that you've obviously thought about uh, what has to happen besides entitlement re reform and I guess the only question is, what's your vision of how the bankruptcy equivalent process might go? Well, <clears throat> first of all, I'm, I appreciate the tutorial because until recently, I thought that the point of bankruptcy was to protect uh, Solyndra executives and the United <laughs> Auto Workers. So, um, uh, it's, good, it's good to know that there's still legal principles that, that don't involve that. Um, I, I, I think that's right. I think that it has to be taken as a whole. It's not just the entitlement state. That's the that's the, the biggest screaming problem. But uh, uh, I think you're quite right that, for example, Dodd-Frank in the here and now has been uh, much more of a drag on the economy even than Obamacare, which has gotten uh, more attention just because of uh, uh, it, it instantly rearranged the way business uh, does business. Um, I, I'm... I'm, I'm a little bit uh, fearful, and I, I think the world of, of Larry, uh, and I wouldn't second guess him in, uh, in his neck of the woods, but, but man, I, I, you know, these growth projections where, where you, you hear people start to talk about, um, you know, five, six percent rates of growth when even during the Reagan years and the boom, I think we got to four percent for only a very brief period of time, and the historical norm is, is more like, you know, 3% or, or something um, something less than 3%. I, I just think we really need to resist 
this idea that we're going to abracadabra grow our way out of this. I, I think that what you need to do, in addition to taking the the problem in in uh, in total, uh, is figure out what you think the role of government should be, and tailor what needs what what you need in the way of revenue to that vision rather than trying to, to salvage um, what we have now and do that projecting a realistic rate of growth in the hope that if we get fortunate and we can grow better and bigger than, uh, than the historical norms, then great, that'll put us in, in better shape. But I, I don't like, I, I'm very fearful of these, uh, of, of these projections uh, that anticipate a rate of growth that defies historical norms. I don't think we should be realistic. Judge? The figures you gave are obviously hugely important, but if I'm correct, they are the sum of liability stretching into the future and in a number of years, I, I don't know. But from the politician standpoint, he'll say, well, the checks are going out now, the Social Security checks, the Medicare checks, there's been a little trimming of Medicare, but the checks are going out. So my question to you is, do you foresee a time and do you have an idea when that would be? When the checks couldn't go out, let's take Medicare and Social Security, whatever combination you want to talk about, where the checks really couldn't go out without a major tax increase, not a tiny little tax increase that could be, you know, easily handled. But is there a time when you foresee that checks can't go out without a really major tax increase? And when do you see that coming? Judge, I, I think that the most important point on that is the one that, that Michael made earlier and the one I, I tried to underscore in the paper, which is that we're, we've been living for a number of years now in an extraordinary interest rate time. And were that to tick up even a little bit, um, our, our strikes get much worse. Uh, were it to go up to more historical norms, it gets even worse. And, you know, were there, uh, were there to be a, uh, an implosion that gave us Carter-like numbers, it's a, it, it's a catastrophe. So I think that will drive what you're talking about more than anything else will. Will, the, will there ever come a time that the checks don't go out? Um, without a major tax increase, I think probably not in the foreseeable future, but that's because they can always print more money. I mean, we'll get a, we'll get a secret or, or a more unseen tax increase. Well, essentially, right. I, I mean, it, not so much borrow, but to value the, the currency even more. Uh, and I think that's more likely than that the checks don't go out. Uh, but eventually, that's a catastrophe, too. Uh, Daniel and then Charles. Um, I wanted to connect. Uh, I'm sure Charles will have more to say about this. Um, what he was saying in his paper to what you've been saying, Andrew, um, which seems to me to boil down to the point that underlying this economic catastrophe is a moral catastrophe. Um, one of the great things about the United States has always been that Americans see economic questions in moral terms. Um, the virtues that that Charles talked about, that the founders saw as fundamental, uh, 
still are fundamental. And what I wanted to ask you was, do you see any way in which uh, we could be on the verge of a remoralization of this country, of the kind that did actually happen in the early 19th century? It happened in England. It happened in the United States. Uh, you know, what we think of as the Victorian era was very, very different from what had come before. And uh, in, in the current issue of my magazine, Standpoint, uh, the chief rabbi, Jonathan Sachs, writes about this. Uh, and he thinks that this is not an unthinkable possibility. And I want to throw out one idea that the, the Republican candidates, if they wanted to begin this process, and it isn't going to happen unless they have a mandate, you know, they've got to talk about it, as you rightly say. They can't just brush it all under the carpet and hope to win the election and only then uh, start the process. But one little simple bit of rhetoric that could change is stop talking about entitlements all the time. What are these entitlements? It's, it's this sort of jiggery-pokery idea that you can, you can get more out than you put in. I mean, even the founders of the welfare state, Bismarck and Lloyd George and Beveridge and so on in, in Europe, they all believed in the insurance principle. They all believed that you paid in a certain amount and you got something out in return. But, you know, there was no magic sort of fund from which uh, uh, you could get out more than you put in. But if you talk to politicians now, even the best politicians, I mean, I've tried talking to our welfare secretary, uh, Ian Duncan Smith, who's one of the, the finest and most admirable men on the stage in Britain at the moment. I said, why aren't you talking about the insurance principle? And he said, oh, well, you know, I couldn't do that. You know, the, the roof would fall in. Um, but, but surely we have to start somewhere. Uh, Daniel, I, I worry more, and this goes back to watching uh, Stuart Varney this week, I, I worry more about a confused moralization than a remoralization. The... Uh, it's interesting. These democratic strategists may have been on last week uh, talking about um, uh, the right to choose and, and so on, but, but this week when the debate was about fair share and Medicare and, and Social Security, um, one of the talking points has actually become that it's not Christian to cut back the welfare state. Uh, and rather than trying to fight that back in a, in a way that was grounded in in real theological um, uh, uh, thought, um, the response on our side seems to be to, to fall into the trap and equating Christianity with a, a never-increasing uh, or never-decreasing welfare state. Uh, and I, I think, you know, it, it, I, I always think, uh, and this is trial lawyer uh, 101 again too, but you... You know, once you've, once you've lost the language battle, you've lost the battle. And I, I really think it would be terrible for us if, uh, if we not only lose the battle about, uh, you know, whether Christian, uh, Christian principles require, uh, you know, continuing to feed the beast, no matter how self-defeating it is to prosperity, which ultimately is, is, um, uh, is, is how we best care for our fellow man. Um, but if we lose the if we lose the rhetorical battle on that at an early stage, the very thing you're talking about the the, the accurate remoralization of the argument becomes a much more remote possibility. Yeah, that's very, I think I very, very much agree with that. Well, there is the miracle of the loaves and the fishes, I guess. But. <laughs> <laughs> uh, a comment about what Daniel just raised: <clears throat> the possibility of remoralization. 
uh, Fogel and his book, uh, The Great Awakenings, uh, makes the argument that we've had a fourth great awakening in terms of enthusiastic religion in the 1980s and into the 90s, and that um, he, he, he lays out the possibility of a new understanding of, of, um, of the importance of the spiritual dimension of human flourishing and so forth, which he sees as competing with the agenda of the, of the Third Great Awakening, which led to the New Deal and so forth. Um, and it's, you can take some hope from that. I'm not persuaded, but it's, it's an argument that's out there. The, the uh, reason I raised my hand, though, was to try to get a scenario from somebody, uh, Andy or whoever, as to how the federal government hits the wall. Uh, it's been – there's a lot of schadenfreude in looking at the situation in California because California cannot print money. And California will have to do some things. And it, it can use smoke and mirrors for a while and so forth. But it is up against the fact that people can move away from California, which they are doing, and that uh, they, they have to be able to write checks that have money behind them and they can't print money. The federal government doesn't face either of those problems. So large, large numbers of people cannot emigrate from the United States in the same way they can go from California to Texas, and the federal government can print money. So where is the point at which we, can, we must stop deluding ourselves in the same way that California must stop deluding itself. A very substantial fall of the dollar with foreign, uh, foreign countries. So, uh, sorry. A, a very substantial fall of the dollar with foreign countries selling their ass dollar assets. I mean, that would cause an enormous problem. I mean, after all, the United States is dependent on a daily inflow of foreign currency to just keep itself going. And ultimately, I mean, what, one of the reasons this debate you're holding is very important, very significant, is that this is not just an issue for the United States. It's an issue for the world financial system. And in a way, unless the United States can do something to encourage the confidence among those people who are holding or will be holding dollar assets, they will cease to purchase them, and they may even start selling them. And that would indeed be the crisis. Uh, James Pearson and then Douglas Murray. Uh, I was about to say something similar. Uh, the, uh, it will happen at the point at which our creditors will uh, stop loaning us money at low, low rates of interest. I think we're borrowing about $1.5 trillion a year on about a, a federal budget of about $3.8 trillion. So we're borrowing about 40 percent of what we spend, and that's how we're financing the welfare state today. If we reach a point where we can't borrow that money, the thing will uh, collapse fairly quickly. On California, California is to some extent held up today by the federal government and, by inference, its ability to borrow. California has a state budget uh, <coughs> excuse me, of about $85 billion. They've been cutting it back. California receives about $80 billion a year in transfers from the federal government uh, for uh, Medicaid, uh, workman's compensation, welfare, education, and all sorts of things. Uh, if that budget ever has to be trimmed, as it will have to be, California will also be in further difficulty, and that will cascade down through the federal system because many localities and states are likewise dependent upon federal transfers. So we have, I think we're at the early stages of a general unwinding of a system that was put in place in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. Uh, it's not unlike other upheavals that we've gone through 
in American history. It's different, uh, but every 60, 70 years or so, America has gone through a major upheaval. A new system has been put in place. That system continues until it can no longer work and until its excesses become exposed. Uh, and the political process then generates a solution to it. So, you know, I think this thing that Andy is talking about is true. I'm not sure if it, rep it will represent a decline in America. It will represent, we'll go through an upheaval that may last, last 10 or 20 years. We'll come out of it on, on the other side with a, a, a reformed system. It may be a renewal. Uh, it may be a decline. Uh, it, it's too early to tell. Uh, the last question, uh, and then we'll break and then have lunch with Douglas. I wanted to pick up on um, what Andrew McCarthy was just saying about uh, the language uh, of getting this right, which is, I think, key. And I just want to point out the importance of conservatives talking about cruelty, but turning it back on the proponents of the welfare model. Uh, the people who rioted in, across Britain in the summer, um, uh, many of the welfare proponents have been saying that they didn't have enough. They, need, they needed more and so on. Nobody stole <laughs> bread. They stole widescreen TVs. Um, the, the point I wanted to make then is that if conservatives, politicians and commentators can reclaim this post-Christian language, say it is cruel to people to keep paying them uh, to retain a life which has none of the components of a life well lived. It is cruel in the same way it is cruel to tell people to run up tens of thousands of pounds of debt to get a degree in photography that will never get them a job. It, 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 these things are cruel. Uh, and if, if conservatives can recapture that, uh, then we can play our opponents' terms against them. I, I think it's not that much a bygone time when, uh, when Rudy Giuliani was able to sell that in New York City or when we had welfare reform in the 90s, where, where actually we were able to, uh, to break through and carry the day on that message. That seems to have rolled back, but it's rolled back so quickly, I wonder if we, if, if we couldn't turn that around again. We have to turn it around again. I'd like to thank all the panelists for a stimulating morning, and we'll have a break for a few minutes, and then convene back here for lunch. <laughs>